Let us come to our God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that you will come to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would come to us in the power of your Spirit through your Word. That we may be able to understand what does it mean for you to restore to us the years that the locusts have eaten. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thus far, we have seen the book of Joel under three headings. The day of locusts, the day of the Lord. And today we'll be looking at the day of grace. Now the only thing we know about the book of Job for certain is that his father's name was Bethuel and he lived through a catastrophic plague of locusts. Looking at the content of the book, we see that Joel is primarily concerned about Judah as he speaks a lot about Jerusalem. And so we can confidently conclude that he was a Jew. Last week, Andrew said that whatever the locust was symbolic of, it is actually a warning, a sign of an even greater judgment to come. He also went on to say that the people were terrified as the locusts came and devastated the countryside. It was a plague that destroyed all the plants, all the harvests, all the figs, all the vines. And the evidence, and all the evidence of God's blessings to his people. As Israel uh, were in the plains of Moab waiting to enter Canaan, the promised land, as Moses delivered his third sermon, he said, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, 28 verses 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Now, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all the commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verses 21. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you of the land and you are entering to take possession of it. Verses 30. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Verses 49 to 51, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall also not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. Now, that comes to pass in the book of Job 
Because these people have been disobedient to the God who has given them everything. And it does seem together all possible that as Joel worked on this prophecy God had given him, he was not only writing it down for the people of his own day, he was writing it down for people in the future, the people of every age. We have seen in the first chapter how God has been warning his people about this terrible plague of locusts, this judgment call that comes, summoning them to repent. And it is not only a warning, it's a picture, a vision about the awful day of God's judgment upon the sins of Judah. He summons the elders of Judah to stand before the people, before they make the sacrifice, to call upon the Lord to have mercy on them. Now, there seems to be a pause as we come, uh, as we come to verses 17 and as we go to verses 18. Maybe a pause of hours or days, we do not know. There might have been an assembling of prayer because we are told in verses 19 that the Lord answered them and now speaks to His people. He says in verses 19, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil and you will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, in in God's concern for His people, He begins to restore them. And if our first study was about the day of locusts, the second was the day of the Lord, the third, in all its glory, in all its splendor, is the day of God's amazing grace. There was a communal cry for mercy, and God comes in wonderful grace. But notice the source of this grace in verses, chapter 2, verses 18, where Joel says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity for his people. Now, jealousy in the Hebrew here describes God's concern, his zeal for his own glory. They have robbed God of the manifestation of his glory. They have fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans 3. And God was jealous to have His glory back. God was jealous for His own glory in His own land. These were people, these were people, these were a people who were named after Him. He was jealous of what their sin was saying to the world about Himself. But at the same time, He saw them in their repentance, misery and shame. And being the compassionate God that He is, He had pity on them. These two things in God are not opposites of one another. If God sets His heart on His glory, He must set His heart upon uh, upon diminishing and demeaning people. The wonderful thing about the Gospel is that God's passion for His glory also involves God's passion for His people. He wants those who belong to Him back. Now with her produce restored, Judah's next need is to rid her land of these gnawing devastators. 
God's glorious deliverance is wonderfully described in the way in which, for example, the locusts are chased into the sea. Look at verses 20. It's vanguard into the eastern sea and it's rearguard into the western sea. God divides and conquers the plague of locusts and they die. And the stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Now, notice what he is to say about this taste of salvation that God's people experience in his own day. And there are always three dimensions to God's work of salvation in our lives. First of all, there is the salvation for them through the destruction of the enemy. We can see this from verses 18 to 20. The Lord had pity, and the Lord is going to remove the enemy, the northerner far from them. And the picture that he gives us is a ghastly one where the army of locusts are lying in the shores of the sea, piles and piles of them, and their stench, their foul smell rises. God not only delivers His people from our enemies, but this is a pattern both in the Old and the New Testament. He reassures them they are delivered, they are surely delivered by destroying His enemies. That was the case with the Israelites. Remember when they came out of Egypt through the sea? And you probably remember that the sea closed upon their enemies and the enemies were drowned. Pharaoh and all of his army, they were just drowned. And Moses told the people in Exodus 14, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This, there, there, there needs to be a destruction of the power of the enemy. Remember when Jesus gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sins of the world, he also redeemed us from Satan's power and dominion over us. In Colossians 2.15, Paul says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Brothers and sisters, Satan is already a defeated enemy. His authority was neutralized by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's why John says in 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there is deliverance that comes through this army's devastation. Secondly, verses 21 to 25, there is a joy in the experience of restoration. God says, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. David prays in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Make me glad that I have been delivered and put me back, putting back the place, the things that my sin destroyed in my life. That's what he's actually saying. 
As we look at back, as we look back at all the years of our own sin, we sometimes regret that we have that we have done so little with the life the Lord has given us. It's almost as if we have let the locusts eat up our lives. And yet, and yet, there is a word from God calling us to turn back to Him, to repent. Thirdly, notice in verses 26 to 27, there is a marvelous satisfaction. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And again God says, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Abundant crops, brimming vats, full stomachs are not ends in themselves, but are signs that God, who has seemed to abandon the people in judgment to the misery of this catastrophe, has now intervened on their behalf. That is the taste of salvation that God's people experience in their own day. It is a wonderful foretaste of the blessings of salvation coming in the future. Now, Martin Luther, the one who started the fire of the Reformation in the 16th century, had a very perceptive uh, epigram, and it went like this. Although we read the Bible forward, we can only understand it backwards. Although the Old Testament was, uh, was written before the New Testament, and although the Old Testament has its own integrity, yet it is fulfilled in the New. Therefore, it can only be interpreted in the New Testament. We have to read the Old Testament through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the eyes of the Apostles. Not only was there judgment and salvation in the history of Israel, there is salvation and judgment to Christ in the gospel today. So if God pours out His Spirit on the day of salvation, He will show wonders, blood, fire, and columns of smoke on the day of judgment. Salvation and judgment are brought together again. Verses 28 to 32. I'll just read it again. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he goes on to say, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now these are verses the Apostle Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost at the beginning of his sermon in order to explain 
what had happened in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the difference between the, the passage in Joel and Peter's sermon in Pentecost. Peter changes the word afterwards in Joel to in his last days in Acts. And he does this deliberately because he, he sort of understands what Joel meant by the word afterward. He was looking beyond the, the history of Israel to the Messianic age. What are the characteristics of these last days that Joel with his prophetic eyes foresaw as happening after the history of Israel was complete and when the Lord Jesus Christ came? What was it? The first mark is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit was given only to a few rather special people on special occasions and for special purposes. The Holy Spirit anointed the prophets, the kings. He anointed the judges. He anointed certain other leaders for their particular God-given tasks. But the prophets in the Old Testament foretold that in the Messianic age, the Holy Spirit will be given to everybody. The Messianic age would be the age of the Holy Spirit. God says in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, I will pour out my Spirit on all, all flesh, irrespective of gender, your sons and your daughters, irrespective of age, your old men and your young men, irrespective of your social status, your social rank, even upon your male and female servants. The Holy Spirit will be a universal blessing, which is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Luke tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The message of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel is known to every single one who comes to Him and puts their trust in Him. Now, the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are told, will be prophecies and dreams and visions. And all three of them relate to our perception of what absolute truth actually is. God has given us, through Jesus Christ, a personal knowledge of God. Now, let me take you back to Jeremiah 31. The prophet prophesies and says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now these are the prophecies, the visions, and the dreams which are fulfilled in the personal and in the universal knowledge of God. Prophecy under the Spirit's inspiration usually takes the form of a reiteration of truths already revealed in the Scriptures. For the Holy Spirit is essentially the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of, of wisdom. He is the Spirit of revelation in our knowledge of Christ. He desires nothing more than to help us know better who the Lord Jesus Christ in all His glory is. And that Lord Jesus Christ, our knowledge of that Lord Jesus Christ can only be found in the Scriptures. That's the first mark of the age in which we live. The last days that are characterized 
by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's happened and it is still our experience today. The second mark we see is the occurrence of the great upheavals. Verses 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Verse 31, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, since these are pictures of God's judgment as a worldwide sacrifice to His holiness, what is clear is between the two comings of Christ, there will not, it will not only be categorized by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is also a time that heralds in the final day of God's judgment. The third mark we see between the first and second coming of Christ is the day of salvation. Verses 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, of these three fulfillments of that great prophecy of Joel regarding the day of the Lord, one is past in the history of Israel. One is in the future. It is going to take place when Christ comes again. And it is the third one that interests us most because it is in the present for the gospel age. Now, looking at this passage in totality, there are a couple of lessons we have to learn as we conclude this portion of the book of Joel. First, God has not one, but two gifts He bestows upon His people. One is the salvation, that is the rescue from sin, guilt, and God's just judgment on our rebellion against Him. Secondly, there is a gift of the Spirit to regenerate, to indwell and to transform us. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, salvation and the gift of the Spirit both belong together. They can never be separated when we come to Jesus Christ, these are the two gifts that we receive. The settling of our past in salvation and the provision of our future in the indwelling of the Spirit. Both gifts are for all of us in the prophecy of Job. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. All people and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The person without Christ has always got to look for something more, something different. They always have to find some pleasure in some new form of fad or excitement, something to take their mind off their drudgery. Change and decay in, along, in all around I see, but thou changest not. Abide in me. Come ye sinners, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus really stands to save us, full of pity, love and power. To the King Eternal, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.